Well, we are blessed this morning to have uh, Joe Pliska with us. It's been a joy to get to know him. Uh, we've connected through some mutual friends of ours, and and uh, so I'm excited to hear about uh, how the Lord's called him and what he's going to be doing. And so he's going to share that with us, and then he's also going to preach the word to us. So uh, pray for him this morning, and Brother Joe, you come on and uh, take as much time as you need, and uh, it's a blessing to, blessing to have you with us, brother. Well, good morning. It is always a blessing to gather with the saints on Sunday morning to worship God. And I say that because there are billions who do not. Uh, my name is Joe. My uh, beautiful wife and daughter are here with me. Her name is Sierra. The daughter's name is Sophie. And uh, we are, Lord willing, uh, pre-field missionaries to Japan, meaning we've not yet moved there. We've not yet begun our kingdom work. We have visited, and I want to tell you a little bit of how that went for us uh, here in just a minute. But uh, by God's grace, we've gotten to hear about you all as a church, myself personally, for a couple of years now. And I'm just thankful to God that today is the day we finally get to, to meet uh, all of you and see the faces that we've been hearing about from afar. Good things, I assure you. <laughs> Good things. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about who we are, and then I want to talk about Japan to give you, uh, my goal is to give you kind of a layout of what, um, what challenges face not even just missionaries in Japan today, but just normal Christians who are there living in a, in a country that is not Christian at all. Uh, but a little bit about myself. So I uh, was born and raised in church. I imagine there's probably several in this room who have a similar story to mine. My parents brought me to church every time the doors were open, right? Um, and fortunately, I was blessed to sit under the preaching of God's word and the gospel being presented. And, and that, was my, that was my conversion as a young person in the pew, hearing God's word proclaimed. Um, but before that step even happened, I was talked to as just the, the youngest of kids about giving my life to missions. We just happened to go to a church that really talked about that a lot, pushed that even for the little kids. Hey, when you grow up, what do you think about maybe being a missionary? And I just loved the idea. I, as a youngster, I thought that was so cool. So I just kind of set my sights for the mission field, and somehow, by God's grace, that's still the trajectory that I'm on even to this day. But I say that to, to say to you all, if you're parents, uh, or even if you're grandparents, and you've got a lot of influence with the youngsters God's put into your family, there is nothing wrong with having those conversations as soon as possible. There's, I mean, resources abound today about the mission fields that's out there. You know, entire websites, multiple ones, dedicated to unreached people groups around the world, people who have never heard the gospel or are less than 2% Christian. So those resources are out there. Let me challenge you to push to have your kids exposed to those as early as possible because you just never know what God could do with that. Um, I met my wife at a Bible college all the way out in California. It was, uh, it was a good stint while we were out there, but I don't plan to necessarily ever go back. <laughs> if you're from California, I half apologize. <laughs> um, no, but I met my wife out there. I got to study missions there. And uh, even before we were officially dating, we had conversations about what it would look like to do missions someday. So then fast forward after we were married, we came back to my home church in Louisville, Kentucky, and our pastors offered to kind of train and mentor me, ordain me in gospel ministry before they just sent us out unqualified, untested, and all of that. So right after graduation there, we spent a lot of time in our church for years, right before COVID, uh, just training, learning how to, to preach, how to do um, member care, hospitality, things in our home, all these things that we'd want to do on the mission field. We got to practice them and learn them at home. Um, and then we got to take a trip in the middle of all that of all places, to Japan, which was not necessarily a mission field we were looking for. But in God's providence, we got to visit for about five days, and we were just blown away with some of the stuff I'll tell you about here in a moment. Uh, but we, we left that trip in 2018, came back home, and just started the conversation of maybe this is what God has for us. So what we ended up doing is we went back to Japan in 2020. We were going to be there for even longer to kind of assess what would it look like to assimilate here, to actually live in this culture be a part of the church that's there. And uh, we showed up March of 2020, just in time for everything to kind of shut down and everyone 
get scared out of their minds. If you, don't, you all remember uh, what it was like right there at the beginning. So we weren't there for too long, didn't get to accomplish really our plan per se, but we were there long enough that, uh, to know that if God would open the doors, this is where we were headed. And we've kind of been on that trajectory ever since. Lord willing, we'll be in Japan this summer. We're shooting for June, uh, June 1st. That's just our target date at this point. And so it could be that, you know, in four or five, six months, we're already over there, which is pretty exciting to think about. But enough about me. What I want to talk to you all about before we get into the Word this morning is the state of Christianity and the culture in Japan. Uh, Does anyone in this room happen to know an actual Japanese person? Like, raise your hand. And not like you know the waiter at the Japanese, like you actually know someone, like you could call them. Okay, I see like five or six hands. Oh, there's seven, then there's eight. Okay, so there's like maybe ten of us in this room. Hold on to that for just a minute. Japan is the second largest unreached people group in the world, which I did not know before our visit to Japan in 2018. And to refresh you, unreached means there are so few Christians in the country that the movement might die out. It needs outside help. They're not self-sustaining yet. They're not a, what socioeconomic people say is the, the 2% number you need to, to stick. And that has been the case in Japan for about 1,000 years, far, far older than our country is today. The city of Tokyo itself is the most populated city in the world. I know there's at least one person in this room besides us who's visited there before, Today, the population of that city, the greater city area, is about 37 million people. 37 million people. And the best statistic I've found as to how many of those millions of people have access to the gospel, it's heartbreaking. The number that I've come across, that I've gotten some validation with with other missionaries, 82% of Japanese people have never knowingly met a Christian. So let's just play that game for a minute. All of you who had your hand raised a second ago. If Japanese religion, so Shinto Buddhism, like play pretend here, play pretend. If that was the way to God and we were wrong, right? None of us in this room except maybe 10 even know someone who might know something about that. And that's how it's been over there for generation after generation after generation after generation. I didn't know any of this until we'd started doing some homework and and learned, wow, Japan, as nice, as beautiful, as friendly, as safe as it is, is just as much going to hell as anywhere else in the world that doesn't yet have the gospel. And that, yeah, that stuck with us. That really burdened us. And so, Lord willing, this summer, we're going over there. Uh, Just a a few things about Japanese society that are um, issues we're wrestling with right now. So, in the culture... Um, There's certain problems that maybe stand out in their culture more so than elsewhere in the world, maybe even elsewhere, like including here. One of the massive problems that's just, um, uh, well, doing detrimental things to the Japanese society is something like suicide, teen suicide. That's an example. Um, Some of you know this. Some of you younger people have heard a lot more about this than maybe the rest in the room. But the the enormous pressure that's under or that's on top of those youngsters Uh, in those honor-shame cultures, the pressure to perform to be the best in their class so that they can go to the best school to be the best in that class, so they get the best college to get to the best jobs, all of that can be completely derailed if you get a D on your spelling quiz as a six-year-old, right? Like, the pressure on these kids to perform is so immense that when they fail, and mind you, they don't know God, they don't know Jesus, they don't know where to go when they have the hard questions or when they're feeling hopeless, They turn to death. And Japan doesn't know what to do with this problem. They have to keep pumping out top-tier products of the next generation. And those who just can't make it, can't make it. But these kids are not even being exposed to the gospel. On the other end of the spectrum, here's another challenge. Um, Over the years, the respect for elderly within the home has started to dissolve. Elderly in society in general, that, there's a lot of still healthy respect there. But in the home, fathers have been so absent. And a lot of mothers have been alcoholics for years and years and years behind because of the same kind of pressures we're talking about. That the younger generation has stopped getting married for the most part and really disowned parents just because of the bad relationship there. And in a place like Tokyo where it's becoming more and more secular, it's easier to do this kind of thing. 
Uh, and so there are, there's an entire generation of 80 to like 110-year-olds who live completely alone, uh, just these square mile blocks of apartments in the city where no one's caring for them. They live there for the last few years of their life, and they die, and they don't have anyone to tell that they died, so the neighbors know when they smell, and they haven't seen so-and-so in a while. And these, these places just exist. And to the best of my knowledge, there's no Christians reaching them. There's no one going there. And Lord willing, depending on where we end up landing in Tokyo, we may be nowhere near there and unable to reach them as well. There's just not enough laborers. But yet, these are the people who have seen all of what the idols of this world can offer. They've lived through that and don't yet have answers, but very well could be open to having those conversations. That's another obstacle. Uh, going to the fatherlessness, Japan, it's so bad over there. Uh, on the surface, Japan is a wonderful place, especially to visit, but the home is dying. The nuclear building block of society is completely corroding away because dad's not home. The, ab- the average Japanese salary man, so in Tokyo there's going to be a lot of these, works on average the 10 to 12 hour work shift, which for some of you is normal, and that's great, but in a society where that's, that's all there is, there can be some concern. But another concern is they actually do a six-day work week, not a five. So there's one day off, and for the most part, they don't want to go home to their kids and their wives. They want to hang out with their friends that they haven't seen all week. And that has been a generational problem for three, four, five generations now, where, like I was saying, the young people are just done. Like my generation and down, getting married is at the end of the to-do list because I don't want anything, like I don't want to be perpetrating or Uh, That's not the right word, but you know what I'm saying. Continuing that kind of model that's just making everyone miserable. So I'm going to go live downtown Tokyo in some tiny closet apartment and be single the rest of my life and enjoy my job, my money, my friends, all of that. That is the state of modern Japan. And if you're already thinking, well, how does that work long term? It doesn't. That does not work long long term. These are the precursors to a civilization that ends up collapsing or being taken over by somebody because they don't have enough young people to fill the, the shoes, the needs of society. So that's just a sampling. Those are some of the things. One more I want to tell you about um, before we get into things is um, the pressure that Christians face on a daily basis is so enormous. Like we, we don't have a category for this in the United States. It is persecution in its own way. If you've got a Christian dad, who's being taught in his healthy local church, hey, you actually can't be at work all the time. You've got to be home. You've got to be with your family and kids. How are you going to be discipling them, you know, if you're not even there? Like, and when you get home, you can't be drunk and mad at everybody. Okay, if that man decides he wants to follow Christ in these very basic things, basic to us, what he is saying to his work team and his managers is, my personal life is more important than my time given to the company. In that culture, you don't say that. You don't do that. That is seen as selfish. Like, who are you to be so entitled that you get family time while the rest of us stay here and have to work? And so for that reason, for that reason, there are many Japanese men who have heard the gospel and don't want it because even just the persecution at work. And that's not including persecution from Buddhistic uh, family members, things like that. So there's a lot of pressures. That's all I have time for this morning against Christianity in Japan. But there is a hope, and the hope is this. There's missionaries and there's Christians in Japan. And how do you suppose they got there? The Lord saved them. They're there, and they found each other. And I I wish I knew more about this, but there are churches where the saints, they've already gathered today because they're on the other side of the world, but they gathered and they sang their hymns and they heard the word preached, and they celebrated the gospel just like we're doing this morning. God is at work, even in a dark place like Japan. And if I didn't believe that, we wouldn't go there. <laughs> we wouldn't go to a place like that. But we know that God can save whomever he wills. So our job is to go and preach the gospel. Here's our game plan, by the way, in light of all of these obstacles. Uh, we are going to plant a church by God's grace. And the reason that that's going to be the focus and not all of these other issues, is because at the end of the day, we'll talk about this in the sermon later, at the end of the day, these issues that I just spoke of are fruits, not roots. 
the root is that there's a bunch of unregenerate people in Japan. They don't have a new heart. They don't have godly desires. And they don't have instruction on how to live in light of those desires if they had them. What's the solution to the root then? Preaching the gospel. Discipling people who come to faith. Training up men to be qualified elders in the church. Planting the church and letting them run with it as being a Japanese you know, pastor in their own culture. That's the, that's the big plan. And from there, there's a lot we can do. But as, as we seek to go over to Japan even this summer... I want you all to know, you know the gospel can do anything or we wouldn't be going. But I also want you to be informed on how you can pray for us, the missionaries already over there, and the Christians who live in a society that, unfortunately, is still pretty antagonistic to the ways of Christ. With that in mind, let's open the scriptures to the book of Psalms. While you're turning, one more note about these prayer cards. If you like following missionaries, like getting their email updates, we want to add you to our list. My email's on here or our website. Either one of those is a good way to get added to that. Um, And if you're a kid in here, we have something even extra special for you. We brought back coins from Japan. We want you to have one, and you can use that to pray for us. And you can get a prayer card if you want, but these are more for the grown-ups. We're going to be in the book of Psalms this morning. Psalm chapter 67, if I didn't say so. Psalm chapter 67. Thank you for the water, whoever put this up here. It is my privilege this morning to preach out of what is called a harvest psalm. A harvest psalm. So before we even look at the verses, you see those little descriptions that are right there next to the big chapter number? To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. So this is a multi-purpose song we're going to look at. Some psalms you just sing in the congregation at the, at the tabernacle or temple, and that's all you do. Some psalms um, you don't actually sing at all. They're literally just poetry. This one is both. It's versatile. There's lots of different aspects. In fact, you can even play instruments with this one. And for some reason, the scriptures has recorded that for us. But this harvest psalm is a psalm of great celebration that happens, as you probably guessed, at harvest time. So you've, you've spent the year toiling in the fields, completely dependent on God to send rain and nutrients, and not storms to wipe everything out. And at the end of the year, you celebrate his kindness to give you a good crop. This harvest psalm also functions as a missions psalm. Probably one of the most fascinating psalms in the Psalter for that reason. There's lots of psalms that talk about missions. In fact, missions really is all over the Old Testament when when you have the right frame of reference to see it. Growing up, had you told me that, I probably would have thought, well, Jonah, right? He was a missionary to, I wouldn't have known this as a youngster, but the Assyrian Empire. You know, the ones who were wiping out God's people and everybody else. Jonah went to them, so he was like a missionary. Sure, in that specific sense, but God is all about getting his glory from the nations. And when you see missions that way, which was what we're going to talk about this morning, missions is all over the place. Uh, Missions even started before the fall in that sense. God's commission to Adam and Eve was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with his glory. Sin messed that up. Because now the earth is full of sinners, which is not exactly what God's meant by being filled with his glory. I want to tread carefully about how I'm saying that because we know God's uh, sovereignty rules over all things. Um, But God comes to a a man like Abraham and and says to him, I'm going to make your people a blessing. To who? Not just arbitrarily a blessing to whoever, like the nations. This kind of language is used all over Scripture, even in the Old Testament. So when we come to Psalm 67, which is a psalm of celebration at harvest time, it's actually very evangelistic. It's very gospel-proclaiming when we look at it through the appropriate lens. That's what we're going to see this morning. So in summary, the psalmist here, we don't really know who it is, but he is so overjoyed at the goodness of God and the fact that he gets to be a worshiper of God that he makes a series of requests in this psalm that sound a lot like missions. 
In fact, they're going to answer for us one of the greatest questions of the Christian church. And the the question is this, why do we do missions? Why do we even do evangelism? What is the purpose for this? Uh, And if your answer, by the way, is so that the lost can be saved, you're not wrong. Uh, That's explicitly stated. Like, that is why we, of course we go. I mean, if they were all saved, we wouldn't go. Of course, we do missions for the lost to be saved, or if not saved, at least to have a chance, right? All those people in Japan have no idea who Jesus is. They're not rejecting Jesus and the gospel. They don't know what it is. So we go maybe to give them a chance. That's a valid reason. Maybe your mind went to Matthew 28. Well, Jesus commanded us to do missions, therefore we do missions, and that's all we need. Again, we do go do missions work because it has been commanded of us as God's people. Or maybe you were this guy, the young, budding theologian in the congregation, and you were like, we do missions for the glory of God. You are also correct. Actually, that's probably one of the better answers, because that answer can sort of function as an umbrella under which the others fall. What we're going to see in Psalm 67 is the great reason for why we do missions under which all of these reasons fall, and it's this. We do missions to spread the worship of God to the nations. We do missions, evangelism, preaching the gospel from here or from there for the sake of spreading the worship of God to the nations. We've said much. Let's actually read our psalm, and then we'll pray and ask God to open our eyes to his word. Look with me in verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face shine upon us. Selah. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth, Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Verse 6, the earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Father, as we come to your word, We come humbly, open-minded, knowing that this ancient text can never be rightly understood unless you give the understanding. So we ask that your spirit would illuminate these words, cause us, uh, yes, to understand, but further to be moved to obedience for what your word has for us in this passage. My prayer is that this congregation would be marked as one that worships you and is interested in the business of spreading that worship of you to the nations. Be with us over the next few minutes, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we do missions to spread the worship of God to the nations. Another way we could say that is we, we go to the unreached people because God is not getting the worship he deserves from them. It's another way of saying the same thing. For instance... Or a way to make this point, a lot of times we, we think about these grand ideas and movements in our world, like the fact that God doesn't get worship. And, I mean, we, we can be almost superficially bummed, you know, like the, the local high school football coach who just gives it his extra every year and no one gives him any credit for all the work he pours into his guys. I think we need to have maybe a bigger view of God maybe a bigger view of the glory he deserves, and then that will make us brokenhearted when we see he doesn't get that. In the good world he made for that reason, he's not getting the worship he deserves. So we've got we we to change something. We've got to make this happen. That's the spirit with which this psalmist is writing. So what we're going to see are three requests in this psalm made to God in the form of prayer, congregational singing, joyful prayer. And the first 
is actually from verse 2. The first is this, God must be made known. Look at it again with me. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power, your power to save among all nations. Don't miss the simple stuff. The psalmist wants his God to be known. But he also, notice the order in those two verses. He says, first, that your way may be known. Who you are, what you do, how your world works. And then second, he says, your saving power among the nations. And that saving power is not so much talking about salvation the way we mean it today. Think Old Testament. Think the way that God protects and delivers his physical people from physical harm. The psalmist wants the nations to know his God. And that teaches us something important about God, and that's this. God wants the nations to know about God. He's very, very interested in that. As we've already said, it is the entire purpose for which he created them. But oftentimes, we present God as not someone to be known for who he is, but more as someone to be used for what he has to offer. Do you see the distinction there? The difference between preaching God for who he is versus just telling people what he can do for them, that is not the spirit with which the psalmist has written verse 2. He wants God to be known. That's his goal. When an artist spends nine months on a painting, they don't forget to put their signature at the bottom. That's the whole point. Missions is about the nations knowing God. So what we do as Christians is we look for the the places where that's not happening, and we pray for them, and we send missionaries to them. Places like Japan. If God's going to get the worship he deserves, if we are going to spread the worship of God to the nations, it starts with them knowing. I want to say more about that in a minute, but I want you to see what the psalmist does in light of this desire, right? So his desire, the the God that he knows, he wants the nations to know him, but he does something with his desire that I think is really helpful for us to see, and that's actually what verse 1 is. We skipped it just to kind of make the point, but let's take a look at verse 1. He says, so the congregation says this in unison, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. And that that third phrase, that's the idea of fatherly favor. There's an endearment. There's a a goodwill towards, right? That's what's being asked. So what the psalmist does with his desire to see that God is made known among the nations is he asks for mercy, blessings, blessings meaning like material good, and then favor from God. And my question is, are we allowed to do that? Obviously, we can ask for mercy. That's a given. We're commanded. To, like that's what, If you were saved, that's what happened to you, is you asked God for mercy because you didn't deserve it and you needed it. So we get that. Are we allowed to do what the psalmist just did and ask God for material blessings and favor in the way that he's asking? That's a good question, isn't it? It's fun to come across these in the text. What does this mean for us today? I don't want to give you my answer yet because I want us to understand the question from a biblical context. In the Old Testament, God displayed his power and his love to Israel by physically protecting them and giving them uh, not just spiritual, but actual material blessings. We see this all over the Old Testament, right? Like even think... The children of Israel, when they were in bondage in Egypt, did God just send Moses to preach to them so that they could be spiritually delivered? No, he physically delivered them and let them spoil the Egyptians at the same time. This kind of language from Psalm 67 verse 1 is just a normal part of the Old Testament conversation. This is how they talk to one another about their God. In fact, I want us to see this. Let's turn in our copy of the scriptures to Genesis 28. Hold your place in Psalm 67, because we'll be back. Go to Genesis 28. Genesis 
Genesis 28, and we're going to look at the first few verses. So the context, Jacob is of marriable age. So Isaac, he's getting old, and he's got Jacob and Esau, the two boys. Jacob's of marriable age, but Jacob's mother doesn't want him to marry a Canaanite. So she's she's told Isaac, take care of this, have that conversation. So this is just a snapshot, an example of this kind of language. So so Isaac, verse 1, called Jacob and blessed him. Oh, there's some of that language already in verse 1. And directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to that place, to the house of Bethel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. All right. Verse 3 and 4 are going to sound a lot like what we've been looking at in in Psalm 67. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. We're going to be back in Psalm 67. That's what I'm talking about. That's what he means. And my question is, if we pray stuff like that, don't we kind of sound like those prosperity gospel guys on TV? Sow your seed, and God will give you a harvest. You give that money, he'll give back tenfold. You pray for the Lamborghini, and if you really mean it, if you got the right kind of faith, you'll get it. While he goes and hops on his private jet that you all paid for, and then sails off, right? Because that's not biblical. We know that. God has given us enough discernment to know that that's not how that works, but it sounds like that's what's going on here. Is this something we ought to pray today? And the answer is really important because if it is something we should pray today, then let's pray this way. And if it's something that we shouldn't, then let's not, right? So there's significance here. In the New Testament, God does not necessarily promise any of these things. He doesn't promise his protection. He doesn't promise wealth. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, Paul tells the believers to expect persecution. Jesus told Paul that. We know that from the Gospels. What are we to make of this? I'll read for you a portion of of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11. You don't have to turn there. But he says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Well, I'm a better one. So what he's just done is he said, I fit the description for Old Testament people who receive blessing and favor from God in these material ways. The next verse. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death, Five times I received, at the, I, was, I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. We can go on and on and on down this text. So he lays out for us there is a difference. I am the most qualified person to receive the blessings we just looked at in Psalm 67 and Genesis 28. But then he goes on to say, well, that's not what my experience has been. So if we're not promised the same things in the New Testament, should we as Christians still do what the psalmist does in Psalm 67? Okay, here's the part where I give the answer to the question. I think it's a big, strong, all caps, yes. You can underline it too. And here's why. The psalmist is not asking God to just bless him for the sake of being blessed. He's actually asking God to bless him for the sake of someone else. God, be merciful to us, bless us, cause your face to shine upon us, so that your way may be known on the earth. James tells us, you ask, but you do not receive, because you ask to consume it upon your own lusts. That is not what's happening in Psalm 67. That is not what's happening here. God is very, very interested in prospering his people for the sake of letting his own name be known. And it probably isn't going to look like you getting a fancy car. That's probably not what that's going to look like. In fact, you're probably going to have more of a Paul-like experience where 
our country, which is becoming crazier and crazier by the month, starts rejecting us in more obvious and stressful and potentially dangerous ways. But in those moments, I think it's perfectly appropriate to do what the psalmist did and says, God, bless me and give me favor so that your name can go out to the nations. We'll talk about a little bit of what that looks like for personal, but thinking obviously towards missions, um, this looks like praying for the missionaries. So like if you're not doing that, start there. Pray for the nations. Pray that they would be reached with the gospel and that they would turn from their sin and become worshipers of God. But second, pray for yourself that God would bless you to contribute to that. That's not at all what these prosperity teachers are teaching. This is, we're talking about giving to people who can't give you back. It's very, very different from what's happening here. Are we even asking God for the nations or that he could bless us? I would challenge you. Are you asking God to bless you to reach your own neighbors? I was so helped when I heard this for the first time by a, a missions pastor of sorts. He said, you maybe weren't called to the field, but you were called to your neighborhood. And the reason that you know you were called to your neighborhood is because that's where God put you. He didn't put me there. A lot of truth to that, isn't it? Ask God to prosper you in certain ways. Ask God for favor with that grumpy guy down the street. And go talk to him. It doesn't just happen by magic, right? Like, this is the missional thinking the people of God have had even back in the Psalms. It ought to be something we have as well. So the psalmist, he understands that God wants to be known, not just used. God is not just the salvation dispenser. And he asks God to prosper him in such a way where God can be made known. But there's a greater reason that kind of is pushing these to the forefront. There's a, a deeper heart desire that this psalmist is experiencing that makes him even more want the people to know his God. That's what verses 3, 4, and 5 are. And the, and the reason is this, and, we'll, and then we'll read them. The nations must enjoy God. The nations must enjoy God. Look at the language of verse 3. Let the peoples praise you. That's the real deal kind of praise, right? That's not lip service. This is stuff from the heart. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. In verse 5 is a, is a repeat of verse 3, highlighting what's in the middle. Why does the psalmist want the nations to know God so badly? The answer won't shock you. It makes sense, but we just don't talk this way. Maybe we should. He wants them to know his God so that they can enjoy his God with him. That's the reason pushing this. He wants the unsaved pagans surrounding Israel to become enjoyers of Yahweh the way he gets to do it. What we enjoy shows the world around us what we value. And if you're thinking, wow, that was a smart way to say it. That is not original with me. But man, that's helpful. What we enjoy tells our family, tells our coworkers, tells everyone what we actually value. And I can prove it. Because in a few weeks, March Madness starts. And for some of you, your time in the office or on, on the farm, your mood goes up and down depending on how your team did the day before. Which isn't necessarily sinful. It's not what I'm saying. But what does that show? It shows you, you really, for some reason, still love Ohio. I hope there's no Ohio fans in here. I'm from part of the country where it's really, it's really easy to pick on Ohio State fans, so that's what that was. But do you, do you see what's happening here? The psalmist is, like, we know this guy's the real deal. He's not the used vacuum salesman who comes to your door just to get his thing done. Like, this guy, he's erupting with praise here, and he wants them to experience it with him. It's like when you get your granddaughter the thing for Christmas that she's been asking for all year. What does she do with it when Christmas break is over? Brings it to school, tells every single one of her friends and teachers, we want to say how great you are as a grandparent, but not quite, just how amazing this toy is. 
that you got for her. What's happening there? I think what's happening there is what's happening here. There is such an enjoyment. There's such a beauty in beholding God, such a worship, that it just comes out of the psalmist. It's just exploding all over the nations. That's what's happening in Psalm 67. He wants them to know God because he wants them to enjoy God. Now, now think with me, right? I don't know if the psalmist is David. We could pretend that he is, but just that time frame. When, when he says the nations, who is he talking about? He's probably not talking about North and South America, right? He's probably talking about the Philistines. You know, these people that have attacked his nation for generations. Let's talk about the Midianites that deceived them way, way, way before they settled the land. He's talking about all of these pagans who sacrificed their kids on the fire, you know, to, to pagan deities. And he's looking at them. And he says, you're missing it. You are missing out. You are living in a world that is teaching you lies and you're buying them. Lies that you think doing these things, living this way will make you happy and it won't. You don't know my God. We're not in a different situation today. Even with the, the child sacrifice, if you have ears to hear, let you hear we're not in a different, different uh, situation hardly at all. We believe all kinds of lies. I've jotted down a few. The newest electronics will make me happy, which is true until the next one comes out, right? We all know how that goes. How about this? A newer home. I'm tired of fixing mine. I just want a fresh start. Let's get something nice. That'll make me happy. You know that it won't. You know that it won't. But that's a lie that our culture teaches us. Uh, Boys being attracted to me will make me happy. It probably will. But not even close to what the psalmist is talking about. Being gay, transgender, that will make me happy. Making lots of money fast will make me happy. Getting out of this marriage will make me happy. Fixing my relationship with my children, oh, that, that is the life. Now, you notice in the list, some of those things are good, some of them are not good, and that's intentional. Having the right president in office, that'll make me happy. Lies, church. Unless you want to settle for a kind of happiness that you won't find in Psalm 67, and God's going to let you do that if you'd like, but there is, there is a higher joy to be had in knowing God the way the psalmist is talking about. Here's one. He actually gives us an example. So this is not just arbitrary. Like if you're sitting there and you're like, okay, on the to-do list this week, enjoy God better. Got it. Okay. Our enjoyment of our experience of God comes from what we know about God. And so the more we know about God, it fuels that fire, right? The psalmist actually gives us a couple of just specific examples of what that is. And that's kind of what the sandwich is there between verses 3 and 5. Verse 4, look at it again. He says, let the nations be glad and sing for joy for, so here's the reason. Here's an example. For you judge the peoples with equity and, and guide the nations upon the earth. Okay, maybe you are looking for more of that salvation language because that's what we're used to focusing on. We should focus on it, but let's also focus on the whole council here. He says, I'll read it again. For you judge the peoples with equity. We're gonna have to know what that means. And you guide the nations upon the earth. We're not going to spend a ton of time here this morning because he doesn't, but let's unpack what that means. Nations, the Philistines, the Midianites, the Canaanites, most of America think that they are governed by corrupt judges and wicked men, which is usually the case. Usually the case. Currently is the case. But, but, let's not stop there. That's how the world thinks, right? Let's see if there's something more true, more real to grasp hold of. God is taking notes. So Christians should rejoice and sinners should fear because God will judge righteously. There is all kinds of evil that God in his kindness doesn't even want us to know about. It's so bad and so evasive. But he's keeping track. 
And at the end of all things, a day is coming where every evil deed done by those in power, that's what's being talked about here, will be judged by someone who who can't be bribed. There's no lobbyists in heaven. This, This judge will do the right thing. Oh, oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. What a God. That's the first part. The second part, where he says, and guide the nations of the earth. These evil rulers, they think that they're the ultimate kings. That's what they actually think, but they're wrong. Did you know America has a king? Christ is the king over our nation. And he's the king over Japan. And they have no idea. Oh, the joy if they did and bowed the knee to him. But Christ is king over these pagans. So what does that mean for the people of God when pagans are at their doorstep for war? Uh, God's the one who guides the nations. He's over all that. There's There's a peace that we get to experience that no one else experiences. That's just a snapshot of who our God is from this psalm. But that's enough to get excited about. And when you learn these things of God, you kind of go back to step one, which is in verse two. God, I want these people to know you. Look at who you are. They have no clue that you're keeping notes and that you rule over all things. And that you sent your son to be the saving power of the nations. They have no idea about these things. Oh, I wish that they did. We do missions because it's not good enough for just us to worship this God alone. We have got to bring in others to celebrate our God, to enjoy him. The nations. And when I say nations, I think Japan. Unless you're a missionary, maybe just think neighbors, coworkers, family. The nations do not know God. They do not know he rules and judges righteously. Therefore, they do not delight in God. Therefore, God does not get the glory he deserves, which only happens when the nations are worshiping God. You see how this all comes full circle here? Let me challenge you before we move on. Do you pray for missions this way? Out of the abundance of your own heart, enjoying who God is, do you pray that the pagans overseas or across the street would experience the same? If what you pray for is that they'd be saved, fantastic. That's legitimate. Let's do that. But here is a, a greater reason because it's, salvation from hell is, is it's kind of this distant future thing, right? Yes, we're saved now, but the actual rescuing happens at the judgment seat. What about worship? Oh, that's, that starts today. This is where they get to walk in the fullness of being a worshiper of Yahweh now. This is immediate. And God gets the glory he deserves from living human beings that he put on his good world now. So let's pray for missions this way. I hope you're challenged to at least consider it. And I say nations, again, think even family. Second, pray for yourselves this way. I don't wake up like the psalmist is talking about here. Good morning, Lord. Let the nations be glad. Let's go. Oof. But I wish I did. Oh, I, I, I wish I had this passion where when I'm given opportunity, where, where God providentially puts me in conversation with someone that is obviously not a Christian, I can't help but talk to them about that because I'm experiencing it right now. Oh, would God do that work in each of us in this room? May we be done with this shallow, this hollow Christianity where we will praise with our words, but it's not from the heart People know. People watch. They're not deceived. They see that. I'm speaking even, I'm thinking even of fathers. Your children, they see that. Pray this even for missionaries as they go. We do missions to spread the worship of God to the nations by people knowing God and enjoying God. That's a lot to chew on. But there's another great reason that's going to come in verse 7. Before that, we have to handle verse 6. Let's take a look. It says, The earth earth has yielded its increase, and God 
our God, shall bless us. What are we to make of this? The earth has yielded its increase. This could be one of two things. On the one hand, this could be a spiritual harvest of souls where the nations that are being prayed about come into this kind of this massive harvest where there's now worshipers of God from the earth. The earth has yielded its increase. Or it could be more, uh, in that literal sense, more crops, healthier cows with more calves, better grapes. The earth has yielded its increase. And it's not really clear which one's the right interpretation, or even if it's both. But I lean towards more this second one for this reason. As we said in the beginning, this is a harvest song. This is a time where they celebrate when God has actually just gotten done blessing them with something. And they bring it in and they, they count and they do the numbers and they celebrate God for his goodness directly to them through stuff like fruit and grain and dirt. And I think this is probably the best interpretation because we see this in history all over the world. What happens when Christianity reaches a pagan place? It's not just that people get saved. The whole society changes. Wherever the church has gone, the land and people have always improved. And I'm talking about stuff like math and sciences, just general education, literacy, but also produce and farming, dealings and economics, better morality across the land. Why? Because people now fear God. That's why I was saying all the way at the beginning, our main goal in going to Japan is to plant a church by God's grace to do this. That's when the earth yields its increase. It's not when people are told about better farming mechanics. It's when people are regenerate and they're born again and they worship God and they plow their field best for him. That's when you get the good crops and God blesses that. I think that's what's going on in verse 6. That can even be a way that you pray for the nations. Like Japan's got a real glittery, showy shell on the outside, but on the inside, people are dying. They have no idea what it is to have real, prosperous joy in God. But if they did, can you imagine how much even more beautiful of a place a land like Japan could be? Let's finish up in verse 7. The third request of the psalmist is that the nations would fear God. And there is a bit of a progression here from knowing to enjoying to fearing. But look what he says in verse 7. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Or maybe your translation says something like, all the ends of the earth shall fear him. Both work here. The point, missionally speaking, is this. What we know of as evangelism, missions, all of that is coming to an end someday. The task of going out to the highways and hedges and compelling them to come to the banquet feast, that's, that's only valid until the feast starts. This missions idea is a temporary command. And, and, and that makes sense. If we think, going back to God's original purpose, the whole earth was to be filled with his glory. Adam and Eve messed it up. What did God do? He didn't wipe it and start over. You ever think about that? Why didn't he? That would have been easier. And then don't put the tree there or keep snakes away or something. Yeah? That's not what God did. What God did is he let sinful man reproduce and begin to fill his world. And after the sin got bad, he, he almost did what I just said. He decided to wipe out at least a lot of it. But he didn't wipe them all out. He came to Noah and said, through you, my glory, my commission for the world to be full of my image bearers will continue. Through you. Noah was selected for this. The story moves on and the world gets just as pagan. The people scatter through the judgment of God. And of all the pagans, God comes to one of them in the ancient Near East named Abram and says... I am going to use your family to bless the nations. I'll give you a land to do it on. 
There's going to be a seed from you. That kind of sounds like the seed that I promised Adam and Eve way back then. God later comes to one of Abraham's descendants named Moses and says, I'm going to use you to deliver my people out of Egypt and give them the land that I promised to your forefathers. When they get to that land, do you remember what they do? They said, all right, thanks for that. We want a king now because this whole theocracy thing isn't doing it. All the neighbors around us have one, and we want one. Well, get this. God, in giving them what they wanted, even though they sinfully wanted it, gave them a king, not the first one, not Saul, but David, through whom not just the seed would come, but we learned that the seed who was coming would also be a king like David. How cool is that? And then in that line of thinking, that, that trail almost goes completely dark for a very, very, very long time. There's prophecies that are given that talk about this coming one. But even before he comes, there's about 400 years of nothing. Is God going to keep his promise? Because again, remember, the earth is full of his glory in a sense, but it's all corrupt. All these sinners missing the point, not knowing, enjoying, or fearing God. And then the promised seed comes. Right, this is the part we get excited about. Jesus came, and he didn't come on a horse. He came through a womb as a baby, innocent and helpless, yet perfect, free from any fallen nature. He is the promised one who will be king. And he walks the streets, and he heals the blind and the lame. And he preaches condemnation to wicked rulers, And then those wicked rulers arrest him. And we're like the disciples, right? Like, pretend you don't know the rest of the story. Put yourself in their shoes. I can't wait to see how Jesus is going to bust out of this. Because he's that king guy. That's not what happens. He dies. He's murdered. Now, of course, if you're one of his disciples, you're supposed to know that that was all part of the plan, and then he's going to come back to life. But, of course, we read the story, and they've missed it. But Jesus has his own plan. He's, he's the king over all the nations, even the ones that put him to death. He's the king over death itself, and he proved it by coming back to life and s- started his, his Davidic kingdom, right? Kind of, but not in the way that we would have all expected because he left. <laughs> After all that, he left, ascended up into heaven to be at the right hand of his father where he is today. What about God's plan to to have all the nations turn into these worshipers of him? Well, before Jesus left, he told his followers he had a job for them. Church, this is what the Great Commission is. Like even how it's worded. Go and make disciples, teaching them what I've commanded you. Yes, baptizing them. Yes, obviously we're preaching the gospel, but Jesus was just as interested in God being made known through his church the way the psalmist is through the people of God then. The the commission is given to a specific people, but the overall purpose, spreading God's worship to the nations, has always been God's agenda. And he has not wiped out all of his people. He has preserved him to just let this redemptive history unravel and unravel and unravel, showing all peoples how glorious and how wise and how powerful he is. When we go do missions, that's what we're telling people. There's a day coming. We call it the consummation where God's original plan will be fulfilled. On that day, everyone who is not a worshiper of God will perish. And God's saints will come back down to this recreated earth and it'll be perfect. It won't be like it is right now. It will be perfect and the earth will be full of His glory. And on that day, when all of this happens... Everyone, everyone, sinner and saint, will fear him. That's what it says in the verse. God shall bless us, let all the ends of the earth fear him. Because if you don't do it now, on that day you will, but it will be too late. 
Missions is temporary. I like how one pastor said, we won't be doing this in heaven. Christians, what are we to make of this? I'd say maybe if you're in this room and you feel the tug of God, the, the aspiration, that's what we'll call it, the desire to do something like missions, chase that, figure that out. Talk to your pastor and, and see if that is what God is equipping and sending you out to do. My guess is that's not the majority of people in this room. That doesn't mean God isn't calling you to spread his glory where you're at, as we've already said. Consider your role in this grand scheme that God is laying out for his own glory and enjoyment. You get to be a part of it in a place that I will never be. Consider your role. Maybe God is calling you to your very neighbors and family and coworkers to be a disciple maker where you're at. If you're a Christian in this room, there's a lot of things to take away from this passage. Here's just a couple of them. First, pray for the joy of the nations. Do it. You don't even have to make up a prayer. It's right here. <laughs> pray through the psalm. May they be glad and sing for joy, knowing Yahweh, the one who judges righteously, the one who sent Christ to save them. Pray that people in Japan and elsewhere would be worshipers of Christ, who right now is their king and they don't even know it. I think if we were to introspect more, Christian, maybe what we ought to be doing before even this, or in correspondence with this, is to pray for ourselves that we would know and enjoy and fear God. Because maybe you don't. If you're like me, a human, there's entire seasons you go through and you miss all three of those. There's grace, repent, find grace, find strength, restoration in the arms of Christ, but let us be marked by this, people who know God. Is there a book of the Bible you don't know yet? Why don't you? Learn it. There are entire generations of Christians who didn't even have a Bible, at least not like we have today. If you have those questions about theology, you're wrestling through stuff, get those answers and let those answers not just make you an arrogant hothead, I've been through that season, but fuel your worship for this beautiful God. If you are a non-Christian in this room, here's my admonition to you. Praise him and sing for joy. <laughs> and if that makes no sense to you, you probably don't know the God we've been talking about all morning. If you're in that spot where you know you're playing the game, or you just, you just don't know, like too many questions, I need to figure some stuff out. My prayer for you is that that the Spirit would do such a work in your heart that you could write out something like Psalm 67 on your own. It just the joy in the God that you come to know is so real and so moving that you can't help but share Him with others. That is my prayer for you, but there is also a warning. A day is coming for you where it is going to be too late. And whether you fear God now or then, that day is coming. So do not run. Turn to Him. Turn to the Jesus who died to save the nations. So church, why do we do missions? We do it so that people can know God, enjoy God, fear God. Ultimately, we do missions to spread the worship of God to the nations who don't know him. Let's pray that God would help us do that very thing. Father, for your people here at Lee Creek Baptist Church, I pray that you would give them uh, not just an understanding, but an appreciation for the role you've given them in this particular point of history and the impact that they've been called to make. My prayer foremost is that they themselves would be glad and sing for joy and praise you for all that you have done for them. And second, that they would be marked as a people who share in that joy with those that you have put into their lives, those that you have given them influence over. I think of grandparents uh, who have those young ears around. They get to speak into them. Pray for moms and dads here. Pray for the first-generation Christians in this room who are the only ones from their family. God, would they 
be so overjoyed at the gospel that you have given to them? And yet, would you also give them the, the mercy and the blessing and the favor they need to be effective witnesses for you? God, you don't promise us that your message will be received by all, but we, we are promised that you will save by the preaching of your word, by the gospel being shared. Would you help this church, these people, help myself and my family, help the Christians in Japan facing the struggles that they face to be courageous, joy-filled missionaries and evangelists for Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name.